When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Okay, so welcome to the New Books in Japanese Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Anse Wagenberg. I'm a historian of Japan and Penn State at Yush University. Today, I'll be talking to Paul Barclay about his book, Kondo the Barbarian, a Japanese adventure and indigenous Taiwan's bloodiest uprising, which came out with Eastbridge Books last year, 2023. I learned much from uh, Paul Barclay's work on Japanese empire in Taiwan, Japanese military history in Taiwanese uh, indigenous studies, and many other topics in Japanese modern history. Uh, actually, I'm teaching uh, this year and last year also, taught two articles uh, of him on fascism in Manchuria and Japan, never-ending series of small wars uh, before World War II. So I'm very thrilled to have him here today and to talk about his new book. Um, Paul, welcome. You don't have to call me Paul. Well, um... Thank you very much, Ron, for having me on the podcast. And um, I think that uh, I should tell listeners that I have put the PDF version of this book online. So if they want to read it and don't want to pay for it, that that's fine. It's it's available open access. Um, and so I'll, I'll lead with that in case something that, that I say interests you. So, Paul, can you tell us a little bit? Uh, yeah, and I, by the way, I, I took advantage of this. Uh, also uh, for my students. Um, so um, can you tell us first what brought you to this story um, and also what brought you to studying Japan to begin with? Tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, yes, well, this particular story grew out of my research for a book called Outcasts of Empire, Japanese Rule on Taiwan Savage Border, which is a, a larger view of Japanese imperialism in Taiwan. And I, I came across a 29-part serialized memoir of the life of an interpreter, and it was published in a newspaper. So the things that brought me to this story are, are very specific to the research process, and I can circle back to that. But to zoom out, I got interested in Japanese history uh, by studying U.S. imperialism in the Philippines as an undergraduate, and I became interested in a, a regional complex of colonial empires and their interactions with hill peoples and, and minority groups. And I added Japanese history to the things I was working on actually as a grad student. So I, I came to this um, secondarily after being interested in U.S. history, but having taught the English language in Japan between undergrad and graduate school, it, it wasn't an abrupt transition into Japanese history. So I, I had some Japan background. Um, so it's it's an interest in comparative history, an interest in empire, uh, life experience that, that brought me to the University of Minnesota at first to work on the empire in Taiwan. Yeah, when uh, comparative, actually, it's, it's a big uh, theme, at least for me, when I read this book, uh, you, you opened the book examining, and you actually said, coming two legend, the legendary figures in this book, one is, of course, Kondo Katsubaro, 
the barbarian, colonial barbarian, the Japanese colonist you write about, who spent most of his life living among the indigenous people. And Mo Mona Rudau, that's how you say it? The, how you pronounce it? Mona Rudau, uh, who claimed Kondakran claimed to be his son-in-law and intimate with, and he was, of course, the leader of the famous Musha uprising, which I'll ask you if you can tell a little bit more about. Uh, both are bigger than life. Uh, one of them, uh, Mona Rudau, was the hero of a relatively recent film, Warriors of the Rainbow. Uh, and in the book, you write that you find them, again, comparative thing, you find Mona Rudau similar to other tragic heroes like William Wallace. Uh, you can think about uh, you know, Sitting Bull and other tragic indigenous uh, figures. Uh, and for Kondo, I, I was thinking of similar people like you know, Dancing with Wolves types in, in American colonial experience. Uh, so I want to ask you, in what ways do you think this politics of memory, the cultural imagery of the Western colonial experience is responsible for understanding of those two figures, right? This is the Japanese and indigenous Taiwanese, yet we use other frames, I feel, to, to refer to them. So this is a great question, and it has a two-part answer. I mean, the short answer is I'm trying to communicate to undergraduates and, and general readers in an English language context, so the the sort of brave heart or that Hollywood film, The Last Samurai, there's different reference points that I, I thought could draw a, a reader in. And so some of that imposition of the so-called uh, Western imaginary is just, for me, a, a literary device to make this history accessible uh, to, to people who would be reading in English. But I think there's a deeper answer to this that causes us to reflect upon our kind of global 20th century is that as Japanese actors at this time, like Kondo and his readers, imagined indigenous peoples and themselves as embodiments of Bushido or samurai ethos, they were participating in a, a Japanese form of, of memory politics. But that Bushido discourse, as we know from Oleg Benish's book and from Bob Tierney's work on Tropics of Savagery, was itself part of a Japanese encounter with global currents and chivalry and primitivism. So I, I think when we move into the 1930s, it's already pretty hard to disentangle what is an East Asian way versus a Western way of of kind of packaging um, one's memory or or narrating it because we are now really in a, in an era of of global formations and so I think that as as I think about trying to cast this story from an East Asian lens of of consciousness and discourse I I think we need to be acutely aware that by 1930, it's not particularly East Asia in the sense of, of being non-Western. Oh, and can you tell us a little bit more about the Musha uprising and the particular context for, for, the, for the book? Uh, sure. So on October 27th, 1930, 300 or so uh, Sidek people committed um, a day of violence against Japanese colonists in the administrative town of Musha, Taiwan, in the center of the island in the mountainous area. Uh, many civilians were killed on a sports day, and some policemen were killed. Uh, ammunitions and rifles were, were stolen, and that ended up 
in a 50-day war were in the Japanese colonial police force backed by the Imperial Japanese Army put this uprising down over the course of about 50 days. And so Taiwanese lost about a thousand lives and, and had many villages eradicated. There were relocation programs. And then on the Japanese side, there was the horror of this um, massacre that, that set the train of events in line. And then the big question is, is when do you sort of set the timetable and say, when did this begin? Is is it something you want to begin on the day of the massacre or is it connected uh, to a longer train of policies? So basically the Musha incident um, refers to that violent uprising and its suppression in 1930 in Taiwan. Yeah, that's the question of chronology is something I want to come back to uh, maybe in, in one of the, the uh, later, later questions. Uh, I was thinking a lot, I was reading it as the October 7th uh, events uh, and aftermath in Gaza unfolded. And there's a lot of connections that I made at least uh, here, but I'll come back to this. I just wanna stay in the 1920s, 1930s. Uh, when I'm teaching empire, a lot of time I use a book called Empire Made Me um, by Richard Tinkler. Uh, uh, we talk about a working class Englishman, a one veteran, uh, who come from almost nothing. He was a uh, you know, coal, coal mine son, coal miner son, and he went to work in colonial police in China. Uh, and the book, in many ways, like Kondo, I think, um, shows how lower class people from the metropole had a lot of you know, opportunity in, in, in empire. Like, so uh, I want to ask, like, how do figures like, you know, Tinkler and Kondo complicate our understanding of Japanese colonists? Because we used to think about I guess I'm more used to work on Okinawa is like there's the state, you know, there's colonial state, colonials, and then there's the population. But it, it seems to me things are a little bit more complicated here. Well, they are. And I think there's a couple of ways that, that Kondo's story complicates this understanding about colonialism and colonists. I mean, there are echoes of uh, Jun Uchida's book, Brokers of Empire, wherein we see that the colonial government um, often will favor uh, particular Taiwanese over particular Japanese, depending on their interest group and location, to further policy. So it's not always the case that Kondo has a preference um, in in settling land claims over Taiwanese people, even though he's supposed to be um, a, a son of the emperor more so than the people in Taiwan. When we get into the details of a particular sort of working class life in the colony, we, we find that the hierarchy isn't so neat, that the, the paths to mobility for Kondo are much more constricted than they are um, for many Taiwanese people. So there's that, but I think there's also the interesting issue of how a person, an individual who's not situated um, with much cultural capital or financial capital um, makes his way in an imperial setting where there's not a lot of structure. And so the the mobility complex, the, the way people find their ways in an empire, they're dynamic and they change depending on the stage of the empire. And he got there in the beginning and we get to watch 
the opportunity structures expand and constrain in, in different areas of land reclamation, working as a trading post operator, an interpreter, a guide, all of these things um, change as the colony itself changes. And I think we have to look at somebody at that almost individual level to, to bring that lens to an empire, which, as you said, it often comes down to the this kind of binary. There's the colonizer and the colonized, and that doesn't always help us understand how the empire was actually able to function. And maybe it will help at this point, and I really should have done it in the beginning, but uh, as we're still in kind of early stages, maybe you'd have like to tell us a little bit about Kondo and his life story. Um, his life story. Uh, we mentioned that he comes from a modest background. Maybe just a little bit about his arch of his life, because he's not really, you know, he's. I, I definitely saw him as a kind of a loser of, of this history, even though, you know, of course, indigenous people are the real losers in this history. But even he is, is his story is not very, you know, it's not very. Um, how should I put it? It's not very positive, I guess. The way it ends up. Well, I think that we'll circle back to this issue about winners and and losers and in indigenous peoples um, later in the the talk. And, and I think it's an interesting one. Uh, Kondo himself was born just six years after the Meiji Restoration in 1873 in Tokushima. And he was the son of a dye merchant, somebody who worked in indigo. And, and Kondo himself worked in on a ship in the Sino-Japanese War in, in logistics. Um, from what fragmentary evidence exists, he was a pretty disobedient person. Um, he, he had a proclivity to, to violence and, and larceny, but he was also a bit of a hustler. Um, and, and he did come to Taiwan with, without much, uh, but he did get the patronage of lower level Japanese colonial officials. And it seems to me that his knowledge in textile dyeing and in, in vegetable dyes and in dry goods, he parlayed that into a career as an operator of an indigenous trading post. So he would buy skins and plants and medicinal items from indigenous peoples, and then he would sell them guns and gunpowder and salt in the early days, and then in later days, uh, finished cotton goods. But he was an adept at languages, too. He was very good at language acquisition. And so his background is really what we would call small business, um, dry goods. And one of these, a lot of these people in this generation of Meiji are, are taking advantage of this Meiji spirit of self-rising and, and self-making, even if it's imperfectly understood it's it's maybe not in 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 a a perfectly um meritocratic sense but uh he he is in that generation and and he does begin relatively disadvantaged and and part of the story of the book is how he tries to accumulate capital and land and respectability in, in the face of those um origins yeah, it's definitely. I mean, his character comes out in the memoir. I mean, he's 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 a show off. He's he's, <laughs> he's a show off. You can you, you so many times you quote you catch him lying. I think uh, the hustler and the violence comes out. I mean, I think did he have to? He said he had to swim ashore because he had a fight with the with the sailors in the, on the on the on the ship that brought him to Taiwan, something like this. It's 
So there is yeah. an account of him in, in one of these Japanese sort of gossipy books that comes out in the 20s where they're sort of these strange tales from empire. And uh, apparently Kondo did get from Hong Kong where he was in the flower business and he wanted to get to Taiwan. So he rode on an American ship and I think he was thrown off the ship in Geelong Harbor and swam ashore, at least in the in the legend of Kondo. I mean, I can imagine different scenarios that are basically like that. I I, I think it was probably uh, a very it was a contentious time in that first wave of, of Japanese colonists that came to Taiwan, if they weren't coming down from Liaodong Peninsula as part of the army, th these were these are the kind of people that wash up on shore in an empire throughout the world, um, getting a second chance. So I, I think he's an interesting person. It's it's hard to nail down the details for folks like that. Yeah, for me, I mean, I was interested in his family background. I mean, he's not a samurai, of course, but he makes a lot of uh, kind of Yamato Damashi, like Japanese spirit. Uh, I don't know if it's him or the memoir or his writing in 1930s. I mean, we can talk about it a little bit later. But I do want to talk a little bit about the samurai uh, culture. And, and again, staying with parallels, uh, maybe not to the West and other colonials, but maybe Japan and Hon history, because you write, and this is something you wrote on uh, also um, in other contexts about compensation, that, uh, and this is about, I think this is following the rebellion, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Right, the medals and cups, the Askuni enshrinement conferred by Japanese soldiers and policemen for service in Taiwan in 1930s, late 1930s, were commonly employed forms of recognition of military service throughout the world in 1920s, 1930s. Uh, indigenous auxiliaries, on the other hand, were awarded in a manner that harkened back to Japan a feudal past, cash paid on a spot for severed heads. And memory itself also, at the time, they make the same parallel, right? It's not just your interpretation. Uh, it, it, they write on headhunting, like, it's like something straight out of an ancient Japanese military, military saga. If they clean their head and set up for display for viewing. And, and this is, of course, this is how samurai used to get compensated, right? Uh, it reminded me of a scene uh, in Mark Ravino's book on Saga Takamori. Um, I think it's The Last Samurai, uh, where, yeah, where they present Saigo's head to IJ. I also use it in teaching because they all dress up in mil Western military uniform. The, the images, yet they show the head. And Ravina sees a somewhat of a paradoxical moment, There's a lot of symbolism, but the change military traditions. And I wonder if there's any kind of play with symbolism here as well, this reference to Asian Japanese past that was kind of fascinating. It's not Asian, it's 1877, right? It's just 50 years uh, before the Musha Rebellion. So uh, indigenous people here representing Japan's own past, and what does it mean about Japanese indigenous relationship? Well. This is an interesting problem about the head. I, I I would I would enter this through the 1874 invasion of southern Taiwan that was led by Saigo Takamori's younger brother, Tsugumichi. And these troops are from generally they're they're Satsuma people and they're they're Kagoshima people and they, they come to Taiwan, and the first thing they do on their scouting expedition is they sever heads of Taiwan people, and they're upbraided. The modern Japanese military does not do this, they're told. Well, they didn't seem to know any better. This is 1874, three years before Saigo Takamori. And so this issue about, you know, our modern military supposed to take heads 
um, as symbols of battlefield prowess. It isn't that an early modern or pre-modern thing, and it's not in keeping with a modern military sense of decorum and 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 keeping with professionalism. It's a good question, and I think that in Kondo's case, there's there's a complicated seeming kind of flood of emotions about this head reverence that that ripples down through Japanese oral culture and, and, and military culture about displaying the head, but but displaying it in different different ways as, as part of battlefield accomplishment. But I think he's also interested in the ritual attention that is being paid to the fallen in, in a way that is not um, sort of callous. And, and so he is witnessing a ceremony that welcomes the vanquished enemy, it ritually incorporates that enemy into the in-group. And, and he's trying to puzzle through that. But I think, on the other hand, modern militaries always try to distance themselves from being violently oriented, from being essentially violent enterprises. And so, you know, heads do get cut off. People are rewarded in, in informal ways and local enemies are turned against each other as a matter of course in warfare. And that happened in Taiwan during Musha when these indigenous auxiliaries were given cash out of the barreled head for the severed heads of women, children, and adults. Any head would do. There's no precedent for that in the Hague or in the Geneva or modern military science, but it, it dovetailed with the, the violence of battlefield activity. So yes, that tension is there. And, and some of it is, is the tension between a professionalizing, modernize, modernizing military, which is supposed to be driven by kind of honor and military codes and, and striving for a particular kind of decoration and the impulse um, to wanton violence. So I, I think that, that I will just stop it there. There's a lot to, yeah, there's, to, there's to do there. To unpack. Yeah, there's definitely a lot to unpack. And, but, and, but I want to keep on, keep on, uh, keep on this point because um, maybe just a little bit of, uh, of script here. There is a repeated uh, reference in a memoir uh, itself to Japanese military past. Uh, to Bushido values, to spirit of Japan. So, for example, there is the Captain uh, Fukuhari. Fukuhari. Yes, Fukuhari. Fukuhari is 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 a big a big part of this. Yes. Yeah, maybe we can talk a little bit about him in a second. But uh, he there's a, a this Captain uh, committed supposedly seppuku. Uh, seppuku, I don't understand. Or he jumped from a cliff, and they said about how the indigenous were so awed by the Japanese by the Japanese spirit and the this the ritual disembowelment. I, I don't understand how he both ritual disemboweled and jumped from a cliff at the same time, but but, but there's this tension that I saw, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, uh, of we're not just, we have our own Japanese thing, this our own fiercest, our own martial spirit, there's some kind of a kinship that indigenous can appreciate. So some kind of, maybe there's some kind of closeness between indigenous uh, uh, martial culture and Japanese martial culture, or maybe I'm just reading too much into it. I mean, um, I think uh, Bob Tierney's book, Tropics of Savagery, does a good job 
at getting at this point that that many Japanese uh, visitors to Taiwan or or people that were consuming literature about Taiwan saw a very close alliance between lost uh, masculine samurai virtues and the ones that were um, still extant in the northern indigenous tribes. So that sort of imagined kinship, as you would add a third layer, would be juxtaposed against sort of effeminate uh, Chinese inhabitants of Taiwan. So we would frame this sort of homology between samurai virtue and indigenous masculinity and 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 think of Chinese people in contradistinction as perhaps more um commercially oriented and 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 less masculine and and so there is a there there is a deep kind of recapitulation of of samurai um ethos here in an imagined kinship but it it's refracted through you know the Japanese public school curriculum of the early 20th century and the the reinvention of of bushido but also the 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 furosato theme of the of the countryside um having something that the cities don't so i i i think that there is very much in in kondo's narrative an attempt for him to insert himself into a longer arc of warrior tales and and Japanese virtue, when in other points in the memoir he's as he's as scared as hell and he's afraid of his own shadow. So he's he's trying to tell this story of of command and of of self confidence in the, in the face of a person that's really outnumbered and and often unarmed. So um, yeah, we cannot d discount the fact that. That, that he is drawing on a, a deep well of discourse that positions Japanese combatants as as manifestations of older military traditions. Yeah, and there's always this tension between Japanese empire yeah, and military, again, technology, like emphasis on technology versus emphasis on spirit and civiliza civilizing mission. What does it mean? Of course, and the and within the civilizing of, of the, you know, pacification and civilizing, of the indigenous people, of course, the, the Japanese uh, drawing, um, and I'm wondering about drawing on, on Western, uh, you know, on Western uh, technologies and Western uh, methodologies, uh, you know, technologies of power vis-a-vis -vis the, the indigenous people. I think about the guard line here and the construction of the guard line. And maybe we can go back a little bit, a little bit more into the historical story here, right? Because uh, Kondo is operating within a historical trajectory of the subjection of the indigenous people, the, um, which was done, uh, and this is where Fukuhara comes in, right? Like the, the uh, maybe we can talk a little bit uh, about the five-year plan uh, campaigns and Fukuhara mission and how the Kondo um, fit into it because the rebellion itself is the end point, right? As you said, we don't. It depends where we start, right? Is the end point, but. Kondo, uh, for example, uh, does, seems to me, right, he blames the rebellions on the construction of the guard line um, and to mistreatment of the Siddiq people, right? Uh, yes, so that, that's about, correct. Yeah, maybe talk about how the Siddiq people uh, react to the guard line 
and how does wider Japanese policies kind of, you know, relate to this? Uh, and I'm especially interested in, in, you talk about global economic shifts that were part of it. So what, what's the bigger context here in terms of, of the rebellion in Kondo story? Well, I, th- I think the, the best way to, to put it is to think of Taiwan as, as an is a geographical entity that can be roughly divided into mountains and plains. And and the mountains have particular kinds of resources that are valuable on a global market. So the Qing dynasty, which ran Taiwan up until 1895, more or less, they had embarked upon a policy between the government and entrepreneurs to build trenches and fortresses to protect people harvesting timber on indigenous lands. Enter the Japanese. They fortify these pre-existing lines that are started under the Qing, and they bring more modern technology and more capital to bear on this problem, but they also want more resources. They want to produce it industrially. They don't want to just buy it from small entrepreneurs that finish it. They want to put their own factories there. So the scale is is going to go up, and that means that the pacification has to be ratcheted up. And so this is where Kondo enters the picture. In, in 1897, he's supposed to guide this engineering unit, the Fukuhori um mission uh, through the Central Mountains so they can lay railway tracks as part of this infrastructure project to move raw materials out of Taiwan. And the Sidic people and neighboring people kill all 14 members of this expedition. But Kondo is luckily um, recuperating from malaria and doesn't get killed. So fast forwarding from 1897 up through 1903, this guard line that's supposed to separate hostile indigenous peoples from industrious camphor merchants who are harvesting timber so they can boil it down into a material that you can make smokeless gunpowder out of or celluloid, very valuable on the world market. Um, The government augments this guard line, like they build it like the Great Wall of China in little pieces and then it gets linked up. And Kondo's role in all of this is to marry in to different indigenous societies and to win their trust as a trading post operator, as a conduit of weapons and metal, and and as an intermediary to organize auxiliary forces to help the Japanese move their heavy guns into the mountains. And this is a process. And so Kondo's involved in this for six to nine years. And, and that's the heart of the story is, is Kondo's sort of position as a broker and a mediator and a wheeler dealer who helps the empire as he helps himself, as he helps certain indigenous peoples, but to the detriment of all of them and ultimately um, to himself. So that guard line is a central piece. It's basically the the moving physical manifestation of the Japanese colonial frontier. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised to hear it was based on Qing uh, uh, policies. I was thinking it came from the British in India. They had similar uh, use similar tactics in, in pacify some parts of India. Uh, it's it's fascinating this Qing heritage and colonial 
technological examples from other places. Uh, well, you, I, I want, think yeah. I think we I just on that point I think we have to remember that the people in East Asia uh, on the Japanese Ainu frontier uh, on the Qing Central Asian frontier, if we think of Yunnan province, um, East Asians did not need help from Westerners uh, to concoct ways of um, turning non agricultural space into highly extractive space. They they had centuries of practice um, regionally before um, looking to these other empires. And I, I think that through line is now becoming more apparent in, in the literature on, on Qing dynasty statecraft. But anyway, I'll, I'll return this to you. Yeah, no, there's a recent book that tries, well, maybe we shouldn't get into it, it's about, tried like this, like, you know, East Asia is non-colonial versus the West is colonial and, and, and environmental stuff. Like, maybe just put it aside, stay with the Qing, but stay maybe with the, uh, stay with the Qing, stay with the Chinese actually, and maybe move back, move, stay, stay with Taiwan here. Uh, the book is mostly, of course, about Japanese religious relationship, but there is a whole bunch of, I mean, there's, for me, the elephant in the room uh, was the Chinese population, right? Because they, right. they do make a appearance here and there. It's not a focus of the book, of course. I'm not asking you why you didn't. I mean, we all have to make choices. But maybe we can talk a little bit more about the relationship with the indigenous and the Japanese and how do they fit into it. Well, that's a great question. And I think the term Chinese in this context might be a little bit confusion, uh, confusing because in the case of colonized Taiwan, most of the non-indigenous population that lived in proximity to Cidic people were Hakka people. So these are migrants from Guangdong, and they tend to settle in the valleys and plateaus that abut indigenous areas, and they occupy a mediating position between plains-dwelling um, Holo or Hoklo people from Fujian and Austronesian peoples in the interior. So Hakka people um, play an important role in, in this book and in other work I've done and in, in, in cinematic portrayals of indigenous um, Sinophone relations in Taiwan. So that's one important group. So Hakka peoples um, traded weapons to indigenous peoples and they exported um, hides and Chinese medicine ingredients to the plains. And, and they were an independent minded group that would, would maybe be like the Scots-Irish in American history, but, but mountain people that were not indigenous. Another Sinophone group, Sinophone group that is part of this story are the so-called mixed aborigines. And these are people who wore cues like Qing subjects and spoke Chinese, but they also had indigenous ancestry. And this is where Kondo's star story gets started with the settlements of so-called Jukuban or mixed heritage people who do have some claims to Chineseness and some claims to indigenousness. And they are an occupational group. Their whole reason for existence is either as auxiliary fighters in wars against indigenous peoples, but also as um, polyglot peoples that can negotiate multilingual borders. And another group of Chinese people that play a large part in this story are landowners with capital that use the Japanese court system and title deed infrastructure to claim title to indigenous lands. And these are Chinese people that Kondo is in competition with um, 
to get title to land through this new modern land regime. So there are non-Indigenous, non-Japanese people who are important to this story in the book, but they don't really show up as Chinese because they're they're either Hakka people or they're Jukuban people or they're Chinese entrepreneurs in the plains that, that have different subject positions vis-a-vis -vis Indigenous peoples and vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Japanese colonists so it i think it's a i think it's a complicated uh, story of ethnic diversity that doesn't exactly divide into indigenous chinese and japanese although at some level we we have to make those distinctions yeah and i want to keep we want to keep a distinction because it's something uh that um you know, it's something again, like going back, I just said before, I mean, uh, a lot of this, when I was reading this book, I mean, everything that happens, uh, you know, right now in Israel, Palestine, um, it's just back of my head. There's so many similarities that I, I could see in terms of also the distinction, you know, who's colonial, who's indigenous, uh, you know, what, uh, I mean, what is the role of violence? Where do you start the story, right? So, right. you know, the Musher Bells, they were brutal, right? It's very, very brutal. I mean, they, they attacked sports day, right? They didn't attack a military installation, uh, you know, uh, killed hundreds of civilians, you know, uh, but then the repression was brutal, uh, was genocidal, right? Uh, repression, uh, the, uh, the use of gas, uh, bomb, uh, use of uh, poison gas, right? use of air force, the killing and putting them in concentration camps, the headhunting of children by the auxiliaries. Um, was there any reaction to Japan in regards to this? You know, because you uh, the brutality of reaction, maybe there's any criticism because you note that Kondo himself was sympathetic to the grievances of Moshe rebels. And I don't know how he reacted to the actual brutality of the Japanese, but was this any kind of understanding of the rebels or condemnation of the army? Um, at the time in Japan or at all? There was. I, I don't think it was widespread. I, I, the, the media coverage is, it, it begins very, of course, sympathetic to the, 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 the massacred Japanese and not much is known about the rebels except they're immediately referred to as, as savages. So, you know, one of the parallels between the the October seventh and and the Musha and the parallels are are hard and contentious and emotional, but you know the the first understanding of people in Japan was that these weren't necessarily soldiers or this wasn't a war but this was a conflict between um, civility and and barbarism. Um, that said, as the war against the CEDEC rebels progressed, there was criticism in Japan voiced against the army and the administration. And some of that did shade into some kind of sympathy for the rebels. But the sympathy was, I think, kind of opportunistic. One source of criticism of the government is that the Seyukai wanted to criticize the Minseto. It was a Minseto administration in charge in Tokyo, but Governor General Ishizuka is a Minseto man. So a lot of the fact-finding and criticism of the uh, Japanese response to the rebellion is just two-party politics. And it shows how two-party politics can matter. 
because you have two parties contending for power, you expose a lot of things that are going on. Even if the reason for the expose is opportunistic, a lot of things that people need to know are exposed in these fact-finding missions. And there are Japanese leftists and Marxists who go to Taiwan and hold up the rebels as champions of proletarian anti-colonial politics, even though they don't know very much about people in Taiwan. There's a symbolic um, alignment. And I think we see that a lot today in the current situation. You know, why would people hold up one side against the other, not knowing much about conditions on the ground, is that it is that different sides can become symbols of, of other causes. And, and that happens here. So the initial Japanese response to, to the massacre isn't one of sympathy for the CEDEC people, but as the fact-finding missions pile up documents and, and we move further and further away from the massacre, there, there is an understanding that the colonial state was was exploitative of indigenous labor and that this was a powder keg. But also the inquiries lambasted the government for not protecting settlers. The scandal is, is that the, the attack happened at all. And I think there's some resonance here with the attacks on um, Netanyahu uh, politically for, for not seeing this coming or, or heeding advice, which of course happens in Musha. Why didn't you listen to intelligence that said this would happen? So so I guess there are a lot of ways that we could use Musha to think about current events, but I think there's some glaring differences. I mean, there's no equivalent to Hamas in central Taiwan. The, the Sadiq people are not connected to external... <laughs> sources of, of funding and, and support in, in this way that it, it they're, they're never really a threat to Japan in, in a sense in, in any in any kind of sense so I think we could find a lot of parallels but we could find a lot of differences and this could just turn into a a, a seven-day discussion so yeah. I'll, I'll let you yeah. respond so yes yeah. I was th I'm thinking about it too and I think it's too soon it the, the emotions are so raw and, and things are ongoing and I I don't know enough but yes I think the parallels are there some yeah of them, as, some of them as we speak uh, I have there's an event uh, here in Penn State uh, organized by Tamir Sorek uh, my, my colleague about question asking if the war in Gaza is a colonial war and I can in you know, it's it's the whole situation on both sides. It's so complex, and but and the question of it's even the situation on October seven is colonial. I mean, those settlers are in Taiwan, right? Well, those people in Israel are in what they claim to be their country, uh, and there's a lot of uh, you know a lot of you know a lot a lot going for this claim of both sides being indigenous uh, to an extent. So. There's a lot to talk about, but maybe again we can talk about it the whole day. I want to I want to remain in the present in a way, though. Uh, I'm going to talking about politics of memory. So, you know, we talk in a little bit about the book about this. That, interestingly enough, uh, the death of Prime Minister Hamaguchi in Tokyo Station by right-wing assassins almost immediately eclipsed the uh, Musha Rebellion, um, and definitely in historical memory. What came afterwards, right? Uh, Fifteen years' war, the descent into uh, to the dark valley of fascism, completely eclipsed the whole uh, Musha incident and what happened in Taiwan. 
So I want to talk a little bit about the longer term relationship indigenous post-war Japanese historical memories because you know we talked first of all because we talk a lot from Japanese side, uh, partly because of my my own training in Japan. And I want to talk a little bit about the indigenous historical memory here, but also want to talk about this relationship between this and post-war historical going forward to the post-war historical memory in Japan. I mean, as you know, I, 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 we talked about in the past, I'm working now with the Shumei Huang in National Taiwan University on this particular case, which for me is very peculiar of right-wing Japanese groups uh, working together with indigenous people to build uh, Shinto shrines in Couscous, in the area of Couscous, uh, by the tribe that was involved in the Mudan incident. And there's kind of a strange alignment between it, uh, some indigenous and some right-wing Japanese, uh, which seems peculiar to me. So. How do we get here? I mean, and how does the Musha incidents fit into it? Well, I think this is an interesting case. My understanding of the shrine in, in Couscous is that it was um, built in, in 2015, if I'm not mistaken, um, yeah. with with a large amount of, of foreign capital, Japanese capital, through networks um, established through the Li Donghui kind of Taiwan-Japanese friendship association. So there's this context. I believe the original shrine wasn't built until the late 30s. I think it was destroyed in 46. And so yeah. it was it was dormant. And so here we see um, one of many cases where people in Japan can think about the relationship to Taiwan as validating the empire because there is a strong discourse in Japan about Taiwanese um, continued love of Japan. And, and of course, this is very um, partial view of history. But, but to get to your case, we could go just down the road on Highway 199 to the Stone Gate Memorial Complex, which is also to the um, Mudan incident, and we could go to the Stonegate battlefield, and there's been a Shinto shrine there that's been up since the 1920s. It's still there, and the the grave that and the grave marker that Saigo Tsugumichi built, it's been there since 1874, and it's a different kind of memorial complex because Okinawan memory activists have linked up with Paiwanese local boosters to celebrate a relationship between Ryukyu and southern Taiwan that is subnational. And it's it's a way of trying to commemorate the 54 Ryukyuans, but also the Paiwanese that, that died in the 1874 war against Japan. But it's not necessarily anti-colonial. And so the way I would understand this might be a little different. If, if I think about the Couscous Shrine, I think about Couscous as a locality that is in sort of cooperation, but also in competition with Mudan and with Sherman and Dongbu. And there's there's politics within the, the Paiwanese group in Taiwan. And there are different groups in Japan and in, in Okinawa that have different kinds of relationships to these particular places. So I, I think one way to understand the, the possible alignment between right-wing Japanese nationalism and indigenous participation in shrine construction it is, to, is to not think about indigenous peoples in Taiwan as, as people that might have 
a, a sort of anti-colonial consciousness prima facie. They would have uh, many kinds of local concerns that, that aren't involved in that larger kind of anti-colonial stance. Yeah, of course. And, and me even using the word the term indigenous as something that uh, talks about um, as one group is is, uh, is is wrong in a way because there's so many different groups within this big umbrella term called indigenous and there's difference between couscous and and musha and right so where does musha fits into it the, the historical memory of musha i mean i think about the movie mostly here that is a very particular telling of of the musha incident and how does it fit in indigenous maybe now do it just a election in taiwan how does it fit in general taiwanese uh, memory so I think the Musha Rebellion, uh, Michael Berry has written about this in, in, a, in an excellent book called A History of Trauma, A History of Pain. And, you know, in Taiwan, the, the Musha Rebellion is, is first sort of reimagined as an anti-colonial um, movement that all Taiwanese can can celebrate. And and then as, as the filmmaker who produced the the blockbuster that most people know the rebellion by uh got further involved it it seemed to be more of an expression of indigenous religiosity lost a lost sacred mission to obtain heads in, in an attempt to look at this rebellion uh, and refract it through sort of indigenous men mentality but then the problem becomes the allies of the Japanese empire that fought against Mono Rudao, their stories aren't represented in the movie. And the fact that almost all indigenous Taiwanese people today are Christians and, and would be uncomfortable um, embracing headhunting as a spiritual activity has to figure into the equation. So in Taiwan, there's going to be a complicated relationship to Musha because many Taiwanese fought on the side of the Japanese against Monoru Dao. So, so that is a very painful and, and fraught episode in, in colonial memory. But I think in Japan, um, there, there is a wave of nostalgia for Japanese colonialism, and people would rather watch maybe the film Kano about the indigenous baseball team that, that did well in, instead of watch this. But if you're a progressive anti-colonial Japanese person, um, you're going to like this film because it's pretty much, um, and it's anti-colonial in, in tenor and, and in message. Yeah. And again, there's so much more to talk to, but we're, we're pushing towards the one hour mark. So I have one more question about the book and then, uh, I want to wrap up asking what you're doing now. Uh, I want to ask about the archival work you did because it's quite amazing. I mean, at the end of the book, you find you found Kondo's lost package slip from the from the Taiwan Mail. Uh, can you, and there's so many different sources you use in so many languages. Can Can you tell me more about this aspect of of the work? I mean, what was the archival basis for this book? So the the big to to keep this short and and to get on the main point, the big breakthrough for Taiwan studies is the digitization of the whole manuscript collection of the Taiwan government general. 
And not only has it been completely digitized, it is now accessible from the United States um, online. It's it's not completely easy to use, but it's a lot easier than what I had when I started in 1995 on this project where things were photo stats and copies or edited collections that are printed and bound and transcribed. And so much material gets lost. So in this day and age, the complete corpus of the Taiwan government general's records are, are available online. If you can read them, if you don't mind reading this scribbly handwritten documentation, some of it's printed, some of it's not. There's all kinds of documents. That's a vast advance. And the other thing is, is that indigenous peoples have been funded by the Taiwanese government to do oral histories, and those are published in Chinese. And I was able to, you can get those in the library now, and those are really wonderful supplements to the documentary record that is now available. And I didn't have any of this um, when I started. And, and without that kind of documentation, I would just be translating his memoir. Instead, this book is me arguing with the memoir and pushing back against it and yet acknowledging where it's valuable. And this is where history is different than literary studies or anthropology. I'm not just gonna say, here's what Kondo said. It might be right, it might be wrong. I'm gonna say, I'm trying to say this is where I think he got it right, and this is where I think he got it wrong, and I think it matters. I think we should try to do that, and I, I hope the documentary record allowed me to make a, an honest attempt at that. Yeah, and it's good that we, we finish with Kondo because he's such a fascinating figure, as a historical figure also. He's, he is such a complex and problematic figure. He's just so wonderful to have this whole book about him. Um, so again, I can talk for much more about so many different aspects here, but I want to just stop and ask you now, what are you doing next? What's your next project? Right now I'm looking at Japanese military awards, uh, both monetary bonuses and, and decorations um, in wars, large and small. And I'm trying to understand um, Japanese warfare and military history as it would encompass counterinsurgency wars in the colonies, uh, the more well-known wars, and how it brings in non-Japanese actors as combatants as a way to think about Japanese imperial military ideology, but, but through a, a pretty focused um, attention to the material and the bureaucracy of apportioning merit and award and honor on soldiers, sailors, porters, engineers, auxiliaries. It was a it was a vast system. I believe it's understudied and I believe I'll be working on this project um, for a good long time. So thank you for asking that question. Yeah, and I should mention you have an article that came out uh, two years ago, I guess, in uh, Japan Focus, Asia, Asia Pacific Japan Focus, called Japan's Forever War. Um, was it two years ago? Yeah, I think Japan's forever war. It's already been two years. The, the time yeah. flies. Um, yeah, so it's a wonderful, and I, again, I use it for teaching. Uh, I use it for teaching and because connects so much to uh, to American experience. Uh, and forever comes from American experience. So another parallel here. So again, a lot to talk about, uh, but I think uh, our time is more or less uh, up. I want to thank you for coming today.
Well, and, thanks for having uh, me. Hope... Thanks for having me. Thank you. And I really enjoyed it. And I hope I can see you here again soon. All right. Well, thanks. Thank and you. don't forget, the book is online for PDF copy.